John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that uh, you have provided place, and indeed you are the place. And we are delighted to be here and to think about you and to rest in the eternal reality that there is a city that uh, is not an earthly city to which we are bound if we have faith in the Lord Jesus. Pray that you'd be with us. Be with Tom as he presents this to us in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the last installment of our series on the gospel of Christ in the Old Testament, and I hope that, that, that it has been of value to you. This morning, we're going to talk about the marvelous place that God has been talking about ever since he started revealing himself to mankind. Uh, God's creation is vast. It's boundless. If we could zoom out beyond what the Hubble telescope is able to, to, uh, to view and we could see all of it, the vastness of God's creation would show us the infinity of our God. But with all that vastness, beloved, there is one place in all of God's creation that matters more to God than all the rest of it. And that is because that place is the place that He has chosen to dwell with His people forever. And God talks about that place from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, from the first chapter of the Bible to the last chapter of the Bible. But the most amazing thing that we learn about that place <laughs> is that its, that its value is entirely about who is there. It's entirely about who is there. It's a place that God calls Jerusalem, but it's not the Jerusalem that we know here. And now, it's a new Jerusalem that's not here just yet. Jesus has been preparing this new Jerusalem ever since He left and ascended back to the glory of His Father. He talked about that in the first passage that Bob just read. And He's going to bring that place with Him when He comes back to claim all of His redeemed. He's going to bring it with Him. And it will be the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. As we saw last week, that recreated place will not be ready until God has finished saving all of those whom He intends to save. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, God is not slow about His promise as some measure slowness, but is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for 
all to come to repentance. He is, he is patient toward you, meaning toward those who will be saved. And He's not finished. See, it doesn't take any time at all for God to create a place. He created the whole universe with the spoken Word, just like that. He took six days just for our sake, I believe. <laughs> but, but God... God is making ready a place by making ready a people. And the single most important thing that God wants us to know about that place, and He talks about it all over the Bible, is that He will be there with us. God will be there with us. And that is the most astonishing reality that we will ever encounter. Beloved, the central promise in the Bible from cover to cover is God with us in the place that He has prepared for us. That's what the whole Bible is pointing to. And the one in whom that promise will be perfectly fulfilled is Jesus. And there's a reason I said in whom instead of by whom. Bear with me and that will play out as we proceed. We're going to start at the very beginning of the Bible and we're going to work our way through the very end and in the process we're going to skip hundreds of passages that bear on this, this point and this theme. But the ones that we will see will prove those two statements beyond any doubt. The central promise of the Bible from cover to cover is God with us in the place that He has prepared to us. And the one in whom that promise is perfectly fulfilled is Jesus Christ. Let's start in the first place the first earthly tabernacle. You'll hear me use the word tabernacle several times and the word temple in this message. In the Bible, when it's talking about God's tabernacle, the references and God's temple, the references all mean God's dwelling place, the place where God is. Okay? The most emphatic and the most repeated thing that God declares about this dwelling place, this tabernacle, is that He intends for it to be us with Him. Go to the first page of your Bible. In Genesis 1, and I, I don't have a slide on this one, but in Genesis chapter 1, the first 25 verses, 1 through 25, are a narrative of God making a place ready. Okay? The first five days of creation. God making a place ready for the pinnacle of His creation to live in. And that pinnacle is man okay then on the sixth day of his creative work god created man and god declared that he made this creature called man to be his image bearer and his agent that means to be like him and to do god's work god's way in god's creation image bearer and agent god placed man in a beautiful garden that he had lovingly and masterfully prepared so that man would live in that garden and care for that garden on God's behalf and would experience wonderful, boundless provision from God every day of his life. But God didn't just spin all that up and then walk away. God inhabited that garden with Adam. He wasn't limited to that garden. God is omnipresent. In fact, Psalm 139 tells us there is no place in God's creation where God is not. 
But that does not mean that God was not physically, literally there with Adam in some way that perhaps we can't fully understand. He was so literally there that He would be heard walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And He walked with Adam. God personally brought the animals to Adam to see what He would name them. I think God had a really good time with that one. Adam enjoyed unhindered personal fellowship with Almighty God and God with Adam. Then God created for Adam a companion who would be more like him than God was because God was just infinitely different than His his creation. And the man and the woman went about the blessed task of caring for everything that God had made. And God was right there with them, inhabiting the garden with His very presence, walking with them in the garden in the cool of the day. Genesis 3, verse 8. And it was all good. But perfect provision and unhindered relationship with God and with His fellow human was not good enough for Adam. Adam believed a lie that said that God's provision was not perfect and that God's word to man was not entirely true. And because of man's distrust of God and rebellion against God, God cursed the people and the place. The people and the place. He cursed the place because the place was was the stewardship He had given to the people. He banished man from the place that He had so perfectly prepared for him. But on that very same day, God's plan to redeem His perfect design for man and creation began to unfold. And it is that plan to redeem and restore what our sin broke that we're going to track through the Bible for the rest of our time this morning. It is the undoing of sin and of the curse of sin that God imposed on man and creation. The second earthly tabernacle came from the mind of God and was revealed to Moses. And God gave gifts of the spiritual gifting to the men who constructed it so that it would come out the way He intended. He, he said to Abraham in Genesis 12, go to the land which I will show you. And then in Genesis 17, He told him that, that He and His descendants would dwell in that land forever and ever and, and He would make of Abraham many nations, many nations. And He would bless all the peoples of the earth through Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 17. Then in Exodus 25, God said to Moses, let them construct a sanctuary for Me. Why? That I may dwell among them. And then He said in Exodus chapter 29, He said, I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it will be consecrated by My glory. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They will know that I am Yahweh their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why? That I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. Beloved, those two declarations, that I might dwell among them, I will be their God and they will be My people. Those two declarations pervade both testaments of the Bible. The tabernacle on earth was not the reality of God dwelling in the midst of His people. We talked about that last time. The word of the prophets 
told us that it was it was a picture and a promise of that reality. King Solomon, son of David, got that. He understood that. And so when he created a permanent building to replace the tent, the temporary portable building, here's what he said. He said, Will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. And he said, listen to the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place from heaven. Hear and forgive. See, God could not actually dwell here among us because in Him is light and and there is no dark in him. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And you say, "Well, how did that work with Jesus?" We'll, we'll stay with me. That passage in Second uh, Chronicles six is one of the most clear, and I think First Kings eight is one of the is one of the most clarifying passages in the Old Testament about the significance of the old system of worship under the law of Moses. As I said earlier in this series, the earthly tabernacle and priesthood and sacrifices were never intended by God to fix the separation that man's sin had created between man and God. In fact, it was quite the opposite. The tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices were earthly pictures of the fact that the sin problem had not been fixed. The old system of worship was filled with obstacles, with barriers, with proof that man did not have ready access into the throne room and presence of God. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. And the sacrifices were reminders of sin year by year. Not a fix for sin, but reminders of sin. Reminders that God's intention to create a people for His own possession and to dwell right in the midst of those people so they would have unhindered access to Him had not happened yet. The tabernacle and later the temple were a picture and a promise. A picture and a promise. And that promise pervades the Bible from cover to cover. I'm going to show you a very small sampling, and I mean very small, of the countless passages in the Old Testament that speak of that promise of God with us in the place that He has prepared for us. Genesis 17, verse 8. I will give you, Abraham, and your descendants after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's kind of the seed form of the promise. Jeremiah 32, I will make an everlasting covenant with Israel and Judah that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. You know what God does with all His heart and with all His soul? He redeems and restores and He makes a place for the people that He has created for His own possession. Ezekiel chapter 37. And they will no longer defile themselves with idols, with their idols, or with their detestable things, or with their transgressions. I will deliver them from all their dwelling places, their dwelling places, in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them. And they will be my people. And I will be their God. 
and my servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. (laughs) Now, King David had been dead for 400 years when God told Ezekiel to write those words. So who was God talking about when He said, my servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd, my servant David. He's talking about the long-promised king in the line of David. Messiah, Christ, Jesus. How will Israel walk in God's laws when they've never done it before? Well, because in the chapter just before that one, in Ezekiel 36, God said He would give them a heart transplant. He would take their hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. Hearts that were rebellious against Him would be replaced with hearts that were inclined toward Him. Hearts that were eager and delighted in submitting to Him and loving Him and serving Him and obeying Him and walking in His ways. He goes on to say, and they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob My servant in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it. He doesn't tell us right here that it's going to be very different. It's going to be new. But he says they will live on it and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. There he is again. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. In case we missed it, he says, My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God and they will be My people. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when My sanctuary is in their midst forever. Beloved, when God repeats Himself, we're supposed to pay attention. And He repeats Himself on these declarations over and over and over in the Bible. He says twice there in two verses, I will put my sanctuary in their midst forever. Zechariah, it's amazing stuff in Zechariah. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. And then don't miss verse 11. Please don't miss verse 11. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become My people. So are these promises just to Israel? They're to people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Then, in case you missed it, I will dwell in your midst and you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent Me to you. Now wait a minute. Oh wait, now we're talking about somebody else. Yahweh says, I will dwell in your midst. And then there's somebody else speaking that says, I will dwell in your midst and you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. So who's that? That's Jesus. And Yahweh will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 6. Amazing, amazing stuff. Zechariah sees a vision of a priest named Yehoshua, which is the Hebrew precursor to the word Jesus. And he hears, he hears one angelic being say, take silver and gold and make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Yehoshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, thus says Yahweh of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch. 
And that's a word with a lot of history in the Old Testament. A man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of Yahweh. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh. He who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices, a priest and king. So we have a priest and a king who's going to build the temple of the Lord and then he's going to branch out and he's going to spread the dwelling place of God on earth all over the earth. And beloved, that's what he's doing right now and he's doing it through us. Because right now, we are the temple of Yahweh. We are the bearers of the Holy Spirit of God on earth. And God is spreading His tabernacle over the earth through us. Zechariah 8, And the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. With great wrath I am jealous for her. Why was he jealous for Zion, for Jerusalem? Because that's where he intends to live with his people. And his people had defiled it, and the nations had, had gone way beyond what he intended for them to do in judging his people. And they'd ravaged that city. And he was jealous for that place. Again, the earthly Jerusalem is just a picture, but he's still jealous. He says, Thus says Yahweh, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, behold, I'm going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west and I will bring them back. And they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they will be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Now look at verse 3 and then look at verse 8. He says, I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then in verse 8 he says, my people will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So who will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem? God and His people. Did you know that if a Muslim says that Allah will be with his people in paradise, that Muslim is declared an unbeliever? I'm going to read you an excerpt from a website. It's called MyReligionIslam.com. And the point of the website, it's a, it's a frequently asked questions website for people wanting to know about Islam. And the people who contribute the answers in the articles are people who are considered authoritative, who are considered trustworthy sources on the Islamic faith, Many of them lived long ago. One question that's asked is, will believers see Allah in paradise? And, and let me just preface this a little bit. My point here is not to wail on Islam. My point is not about Islam. My point is about the distinctive, about what makes the true faith amazing. Okay, so bear with me. Will believers see Allah in paradise? Here's the answer. If one says, I see Allah in paradise, one becomes a disbeliever. But if one says, I see Allah from paradise, one does not become a disbeliever. The reason is that in the former statement, place has been ascribed to Allah. Attributing a place to Allah, such as paradise, is wrong. Another question asked on the same side is, will the believers in paradise see Allah from paradise any time that they want to? And the answer is, well, it's in two parts. Those who lived kind of 
moderately exemplary lives. They did good enough to get into paradise, but not great. They'll get to see Allah on Fridays. I'm not making this up. Those who did lead exemplary lives will get to see Allah anytime they want to. But not in paradise, from paradise. The far greater failure of Islam is, is revealed in Jesus' statement in John 5.23 when He said, He who does not honor the Son even as He honors the Father does not honor the Father who sent Him. That does away with a whole bunch of man-made religions. But I point out that article from that website to draw your attention to one of the most foundational distinctives of the true faith of Jesus Christ. And that is that the single most important thing that God intends for us, His people, to know about the place in which we will spend eternity is that He will be there with us. Forever. God ascribes place to Himself throughout the entire Bible when He's talking about His plan for His people. We've already seen a long list of those evidences from the Old Testament. Here's one more. Psalm 132 For Yahweh has chosen Zion, listen to this, He has desired it for His habitation. And He says, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. And that's Jesus. Who's ascribing place to God in those verses? God is. Repeatedly. It doesn't mean that God is limited to that place any more than He was limited to Eden. But in all of these passages and in many, many more that I won't have time to to present this morning, God declares that He will actually be in that place with us. It's both and. It doesn't deny the omnipresence of God. It, It simply affirms that He will actually be there with us as literally and as truly as he walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day and could be heard walking in the garden as literally beloved as literally and as truly as Jesus walked alongside his disciples for 33 years as fully present as Jesus was with them as is as is Possible for a person to be just so God will be among us and will walk with us and we will walk with Him. It will not be a metaphor. It will not be a picture. It will be intimate, personal fellowship and communion. It will be perfection of relationship between you and God, between us and God, and it will last forever. And because God is omnipresent, we won't have to arm wrestle each other over who gets access to Him. It won't be God over there. It will be God right here. Loving those whom He redeemed to be His own treasured possession, His own inheritance. That's what He calls His church. A gift from the Father to the Son. That's us. We will know Him as beloved children. There's, a, you can, there's some great photos of John F. Kennedy with John John in the Oval Office when he was a four-year-old boy. And it was said later after that administration that President Kennedy told his Secret Servicemen that 
no matter what he was working on in the Oval Office, if John John wanted in there, they were to open the door and let him in. That's the access that we have. That's God's promise. Beloved children. And of course, this very same promise pervades the New Testament because it is the central promise of the Bible. In the very last moments that Jesus had with His disciples before He was arrested and mocked and beaten and crucified to pay for their sin and for ours, Jesus walked with His beloved disciples in a beautiful garden. And just hours before that, knowing how very hard that night and the next day were going to be for them, He said to those eleven men whom He loved with a fierce and perfect love, the very same thing that He is saying today to every single child that He has redeemed and will redeem to be His own. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ alone, this is what He's saying to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself that where I am, you may be also. That's God's promise to you. That's God's promise to all who belong to Him. And that's, that is an astonishing promise. The very last big passage in your Bible is Revelation chapters 21 and 22. It's one passage. It's all about where we who believe in Jesus will spend eternity and with whom. Here's how that incomparable passage begins. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The tabernacle of God is among men. And He will dwell among them. And they shall be His people. And God Himself will be among them. That's the promise. That's the promise. That's the promise of the entire Bible. That is the end point of God's entire plan of redemption. Is God with us. You know that, you know that when the angel appeared to Joseph, the father of Jesus, and told him that his wife was not pregnant by accident. She was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And that this is the one who would save his people from their sins. And then, and then Matthew narrates and he says, this is the one that Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 7.14 when he said, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and she will give birth and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Why is this important? <laughs> because it changes absolutely everything. Forever. In 1 Peter 1, Peter says that this very promise causes us to greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. 
Is that something you want? Do you want to rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory? If you knew how to get that kind of joy, would you consider that practical? Would you consider that applicational? Would that have an impact on your life? Peter says that joy comes when we fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ when He comes back. We camp out in everything that we've been looking at this morning in God's Word, and there's a whole lot more of it. There are people in this room or listening to this message who have never known what it's like to be truly loved. There are people here who long for a place of real rest and real peace for their souls and for their bodies. But friends, it will not be a change of circumstance that will bring you that love, that peace, or that rest. It will be a person, and that person's name is Jesus. He is our long-promised place. When I said at the beginning of this message that the one in whom this promise is fulfilled is Christ, there's a reason I use the word in instead of the word by. And that reason is that the one and only basis upon which any of us will ever be qualified to dwell in the very presence of our perfectly holy God is because we are in Christ. It's His access to the Father that becomes our access to the Father. His righteousness and His payment of the debt that we owed to God because of our high-handed rebellion against God. His righteousness and His atoning death are our only qualification to dwell in the presence of our perfectly holy God, the only one we will ever have. He is our long-promised place. For all who are in Christ Jesus through childlike trust in Him alone, the day is coming very, very soon when we will all dwell together with one another in the very presence of God and He'll be right there in our midst and Ephesians 2.7 says that in that place, He'll spend the rest of eternity lavishing upon us <laughs> the boundless, measureless riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And knowing that changes everything now. So very much of what you and I experience in this life under the curse is intended by God to break us of our affection for these temporal things that cannot satisfy so that we will turn our attention entirely to the only one who can and does. And when we get that, when we understand that that's what God is doing, He is breaking us of our affection for temporary, fleeting, cursed things that cannot satisfy so that we will turn our attention and affection, our entire focus, to the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, to dwelling in His eternal kingdom forever. When we stop looking at this tiny subatomic dot at the beginning of an eternal line and treating it as if it tells us everything that we need to know, when we stop the foolishness of taking the equivalent of one drop of water out of the ocean and looking at it and thinking that it tells us everything that we need to know about life, and we start looking at the line 
And we start looking at God's promise about the line, about God's promise about how we will spend eternity. It changes everything about now. Far too many Christians, real redeemed Christians, assess their well-being day by day on how things are going for them here in this cursed place. But you will never experience here and now the well-being that belongs to you as your birthright in Christ if your mind and your heart are not anchored on what's coming. In City of God, St. Augustine talking about that heavenly city, that beautiful place that God has prepared for us, he said, there is no felicity, no happiness for the believer this side of, this side of eternity if we are not focused on that side of eternity. All the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Things which Paul says, eye has not seen and ear has not heard and have not entered the heart of man. But then in the very next verse, he says the things that God has revealed to us who belong to Him through the Spirit. How has He revealed them to us? This. Spiritual thoughts combined with spiritual words. And these are the spiritual words. And if you want to know joy inexpressible and full of glory... You need to be in this. Because the world's not going to tell you how to find it. It's going to do everything that it can to rob you of it. You might be thinking, okay, but the Bible doesn't tell me all that much about the new heavens and the new earth. What it does say sounds pretty great. But it's not like I know what a typical day is going to be like when I get there. So it's hard to get very excited about it. Beloved, God has told us an enormous amount about heaven because He has told us so very, very much about Himself. He's what heaven is about. The point of the place is the presence of the persons. The point of the place is the presence of the persons. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the Bride. And the Bride's only there because we're in the Son. What has God prepared for those who love Him? A place where we will be together with Him along with all of His redeemed. A place where everything that we will call life will be entirely bound up and defined by our relationship and union with the living God through the person in the person of Jesus Christ. That's on the, the night before He was crucified, Jesus called out to His Father and He said, this is eternal life, that they may know You, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. You want to know what life is, guys? That's it. It's relationship with the living God in Jesus Christ. Everything else is a scam. That's life. What will make heaven heaven? The Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the Bride. Everything that we need to know about the eternal dwelling place of God in our midst is that God will be in our midst. As John the Apostle describes the astonishing vision of the new Jerusalem that God gave to him in Revelation 21, he says, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, For the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. The entire Bible talks about God putting His sanctuary in the midst of His people and dwelling with them. 
And then he gets to the last two chapters of the Bible and he says, it won't be a physical sanctuary. It'll be me. He will be our all in all. He will be our light and our life. So brothers and sisters, if you want to know what heaven is like, pick up your Bible and start beholding the one who will make heaven, heaven. I've been digging into this book for 46 years and there are people here who have been digging in it considerably longer than that and who know it a good bit better than I do. But I, I got to tell you that that the thought of stepping into the new Jerusalem gives me goosebumps and fills me with eager anticipation because of the one that I know I will see when I get there. And you know what? It fills me with goosebumps too because I know I'll be there with you. And knowing that the end point of all this is to be with Him, together with you, tells me that it is exceedingly well with my soul right now and forever. Because nobody can take that away from me. And nobody can take that away from you. And I can put up with anything for a while if I know that's where it's headed. That's what God intends for all of His children to confidently know all the rest of our days on this earth. Let's pray. Dear Father, I I ask that anyone who came this morning not knowing if they would spend eternity with You or without You, will simply take You at Your Word with childlike faith. will trust in the perfect person and completed work of Jesus Christ this very day and be saved forever so that He or she will get to dwell with us together in the presence of Almighty God forever and ever. And I pray that we who belong to Christ will be filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory because we know that You are our inheritance. You are our very great reward. You are the one who makes heaven, heaven. Make us bold to proclaim this glorious reality to those who do not know it. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.